Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the podcast today, we have an interview that's been long in the making. Um, with uh, And today we have Buki Akinwale. Did I pronounce that right? You did, you did. Good job. Oh, thanks, thanks. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited about this. I uh, I found uh, Buki through social media. I I uh, I follow um, the University of North Texas uh, UNT's behavior analysis page. There's so much good stuff coming out of that school. That's just such a that's a school I wish I went to. There's just so much goodness there. So much, mm-hmm. yeah. It's just, it's, and and so many cool people that I I'm, that I have on the podcast and otherwise I haven't. It's just come out of that place. Really neat. Anyway, I, I, someone had shared um, uh, Wookie's thesis, uh, and I was like, "What is that? <laughs> that is cool!" And right away I reached out. Uh, and it took some time. She was still doing work on the project. Uh, and we wanted, she wanted to finish it off. And, and then it was just sort of scheduling and so on and so forth. We finally made it happen. Um, but, mm. you know, she graduated you know, almost six months ago now. Um, but before we get into Buki, I just want to start by quickly um, acknowledging that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the uh, Comox, Homoko, Talaman, uh, and Tlehu's First Nations, who are one nation before we white settlers came in and separated them into reserves. Um, and uh, there was something cool that was going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just in terms of kind of not really related. I, I often try to share about sort of connections I'm making with um, the local First Nation, but episode I just released today, which with Adrian Bradley, uh, I just I did that interview last week, and so uh, folks should be up to date on kind of where that's all going. So I'll let you listen to that episode to hear how here are some of the new developments in my uh, relationship with uh, the Talaman people. But in terms of sort of indigenous learning, I'm uh, it's it's taken a while I, because I think you know, and we talk a lot about sort of these systemic issues for sort of. Black and brown and indigenous folks and getting into the field and getting noticed and you know getting platforms and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been struggling to find, you know, more kind of well, indigenous guests that are that are kind of working in these areas. Um, uh, you know, I like I know I can count on one hand in the indigenous behavior analysts that I know in Canada. There's more in the States for sure. And I think a lot of them I just don't know. So if you're out there and you want to share your stuff, reach out to me. But um but I've been venturing into kind of other areas beyond behavior analysts, but beyond behavior analysis on the podcast. Um uh just as a to kind of learn more. And one area I've been kind of diving into is school psych, which has a lot of parallels to the work we do. And um there's some really good work being done in the states, I think, around indigenous school psychology. Um, and so I've got 
some uh, at least one, maybe two uh, indigenous uh, psychologist researchers yeah. coming on the podcast. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, which I'm really looking forward to learning. I, I I don't know. I know very little about sort of, you know, uh, indigenous culture. You know, uh, in in the lands the white folks call the U.S. Um, I don't know a lot about them in my neck of the woods either, but um, but even less about sort of just. As, a, as as I think we'll touch on today, as as is sort of, you know, African history is so vast and varied and, you know, unique, not just from person to person, but from, you know, community to community and country to country and so on, you know, so is Indigenous history. There are so many tr- different tribes and clans and groups um, of people that, you know. When I die, I still won't know everything by any means, <laughs> and I won't. And you know, I, I'm not indigenous, so I'm never going to know a lot of those things. But um, anyway, I'm just I'm excited to to connect with some of these folks and uh, and learn. And so the one, this one I'm going to be bringing on, I don't want to say the name because I, I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to ruin it in case in case it, it falls apart. But this one I want to bring on that that read that that answered my email today said she's you know she's been doing this work and she's going to bring two of her indigenous grad students on too so well, uh, so it's going to be that's going to be neat so anyway i'm really just grateful that um you know the podcast has gotten to a place where you know i can find cool people that are doing like really unique things from really unique perspectives and worldviews mm-hmm. which is a nice segue into buki as buki's <laughs> work is cool and really needed um and really i think i think it's gonna i think it's gonna be a game changer um uh because it's it's on on so many levels it's 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 not what you'd think we'd be using a b a for um and uh but it's exactly what we should be using APA for um, um so i'll just tell you i mean i'll i'll, I'll i'm going to read the title of, of of your thesis and then we'll get into sort of your background and we'll dive more into it but just mm-hmm. just, just to give people a taste hails by moonlight i mean right there i was <laughs> I, I i you know, had you had me at moonlight um <laughs> An exploratory analysis of the effects of a storytelling interview package for youths and elders in a historically black community. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in our field. I've seen some really awesome, awesome social justice work coming out now. Some from, you know, some of your mentors. Um, in fact, I had uh, Dr. Pritchett on um, a couple months ago as well. That episode mm-hmm. will be coming out soon. Um, we talked about you a little bit. Um, and... Uh, uh you know and and so many folks are doing some really amazing stuff with you know behavior analysis and kind of social justice areas but this is just this is a completely different different thing here mm-hmm. and uh yeah i was saying to the Buki audience uh i you know i'm not a reader I was saying to Adrian in the in, in the interview actually I've got that I I, I had this I have this bookshelf here of many many books and really important books in our field 
And I think I've read like two pages out of each of them. Um, <laughs> you know, they're they're a good resource if I need them, but I've never read them cover to cover. Um, journal articles, I try, but you know, um, you know, I'll often skim through. Uh, so an actual thesis, you know, which is often hundred or more pages, you know, I'll never read. Um, <laughs> but Buki's thesis, I read every single page, and I couldn't put it down. Um, it was the, just the coolest thing I've ever read. So um grateful that you came on to share the story, share your story, and share this story. Uh, uh, because I think it's yeah, I think it's big. Um, yeah. So before we get into that, maybe just uh as I always do, just kind of hear a little bit of kind of how you got into you know ABA and the field and uh and uh and how kind of kind of kind of your 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 journey mm, okay um so i'd like to first of all say that i am originally nigerian west african mm. i grew up in nigeria spent my whole life in nigeria and um yeah so i'm nigerian and i'm african core and true and um from when I was younger, I was always so inquisitive. I always asked why. And my parents would tell me that I was just being rude. <laughs> and you never ask an adult why. You just do what they tell you. But I yeah. always wanted to find the truth, like the stories. I think my grandma, my granddad, from my mom's side, they were over me. Whenever I would go to the house, I just wanted to know so much about like the history of the community. Why is the yes. king? The king, we call him, um, they call him Pope Ham. I always wanted to know why that name, first of all, and why is he the Pope Ham? Why not someone else? Like I always mm. asked mm. questions and they were so over me, but I was always mm. really intrigued in research and also in stories and mm. love stories. And mm. when I when I had the opportunity to come here to do my undergrad, um, I knew I liked research. So mm. in my head, like the only type of research, because of like my background and what I learned growing up, research was science and science was biology, chemistry and physics. Mm, of course. So my bachelor's degree is in, my first one is in biological chemistry with a minor in biology because that's science, that's research. And um, during my last semester, I got the chance to actually like do research and work in a lab. And I, I was working with a professor from China and she brought like the magic plant and we're supposed to find the healing property of this plant. So mm. my job was to make the solution that we were going to run in the machine and then we get the results and go on from there. And so it was research, it's science, I'm excited. And then mm. I made the solution. I was so intrigued by the plant and I was more mm. intrigued by the stories and the testimonies of people that have used this plant as a mm. tea to like heal themselves. And then yeah. like, it would be cool to actually find the healing property and then hopefully use this in for greater good. Mm. So I made the solution, I put it in the machine and then they told me I would have to wait for two hours in the room with the machine and no one else to wait for the results. I was just in the cold room day in, day out, waiting for results. I'll make a new solution, the same thing, another solution, the same thing. I was like, I know I love research, but this can't be the <laughs> I was so 
speak to my friend and she just got into ABA and she was talking about how amazing it was. And um, like, since I'm so bored <laughs> with what I'm doing, then I should try ABA. And um, I applied to the only, the first place I applied to was ABA Academy, a small autism clinic in Arlington, Texas. And it was run by um, a lady called Nancy Wagner, and she's been in the field for years as well. And um, I was telling her about like my undergrad and then coming into aviation. You know, I had no experience. I've never worked with any individual on the autism spectrum. And um, she, the first time I met her, she told me like, this is science. This is research. The same way you made your solution, you ran it, you saw the results and you knew you had to make another solution. That's what we're doing. Mm. We have the intervention. We run it with our um, with our clients. We see the results. Is there a change? If there's no change, then we go back to the drawing board. And she was like, the great thing about this is like working with the children, working on the team, working together to make mm. our clients' lives better. And I was like, yeah, I think this is what I want to do. Mm. And after working there for a few months, I was like, yes, ABA is my heart. ABA is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, but it took me like a short period of time to notice that typically I was like the only, not the only, we're only two Black employees in a company mm. of, I think, over like 40 people. It's okay. like, I started to learn like of ABA, as I see ABA as a white career, but I still wanted to <laughs> break in and like actually do the work and be good at mm. my work and help my clients. So I thought the best thing that I could do was to learn about ABA. So I went back to get my second bachelor's in behavior and anal- applied behavior analysis at UNT. And before uh, yeah, before I actually applied for my second bachelor's, I met with, um, I don't know what her title was back then, but it was um, Dr. Toussaint. I met with her. She asked me what I, why ABA. I told her why ABA. And she asked me what I wanted to use ABA for. And I said, eventually, I would like to bring ABA, make ABA accessible to like Black individuals like myself. Um, mm. And hopefully even take it back to Nigerian build like a clinic that's helping a, a lot of individuals and hopefully spread it all over Africa so that was my goal and then she mm. said you know what I think if you talk to Dr. Shala Alai she'd mm. be the best person to work with so I met with Shala and the, from the first day I was like yeah this is this is the lady I want to work mm. with and I did my second bachelor's doing that I met Dr. Prichet she was um, a TA for one of my classes and um, and then I applied to the master's and then got my master's all the while I was working as an RBT as well so it was like six years of my life in ABA learning about ABA and my bachelor's and then my master's and then just working in the field for six years and it was amazing I it was one of the most impactful work I had ever done and Mm. I will always be grateful for my time working as an RBT and I still remember all my clients I remember their faces I remember Mm. their names (laughs) they changed my life Mm. and I yeah I'm so grateful but that's how I got into ABA that was a long-winded answer but that (laughs) that was relatively short compared to some of them 
you're, you're on par. You're on par. Um, that's cool. Um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of little tidbits in there that really kind of feed into sort of this project. Um, just for sake of timeline. So, how old were you when you came? When you came over from Nigeria? I was seventeen. Seventeen. So, it was. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, and then Shala, of course. I mean, someday Shala will be on here. Um, <laughs> you know, when I'm cool enough. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah, she's 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 awesome she's she's the she's she's the reason for so many amazing people in our field yeah um, not, to can, mention, not to mention herself yeah and i can strongly say that if shala wasn't my thesis advisor i don't think i would have been given the opportunity to actually run this study and it's all because of shala that's yeah that not that i'm not surprised um you talked about kind of you know being grateful but also you know your time in aba as mm -hmm. if as if it's ended uh <laughs> what, what's that about i wouldn't say it's ended i'll say we're more like we're taking a break it's right? a pause yeah it's been like six years 2017 to 2021 mm. yeah this is not 2016 actually but it's, it was a big chunk of my adult life yeah. and um honestly if i want to be honest like the mm -hmm. thing that stopped me from aba was i i felt like with the clinic one of the last clinics i worked with there wasn't space for growth in terms of like leadership opportunities for myself and mm. um I was already assisting the BCBA I was helping make like programs and interventions and I was in charge of like data collection and I was basically doing like what I, I would consider like a senior um behavior therapist would be doing or you were doing a job that you should have been promoted to. Exactly. And I just wasn't given the opportunity. And it, mm. it, it really, it was really disappointing. It was really, yeah. really they made me step away from that clinic. And then I tried with another clinic and it's, I don't know. <laughs> I guess maybe this, the next clinic that I tried was like, it, it, it's more, it has more like branches and more, yeah, more clinics around mm. like Dallas, like too much. It's like, yo, <laughs> how many clinics are, do you have? It, it feels like a corporation. Yeah. And, yeah, it just felt weird. And I was like, I don't think this is for me anymore. And yeah, I just needed something different and something that would give me flexibility and something that would allow me to like stop working. I feel like I never stopped working because I'll come back mm. home. And then sometimes if it's a good day with my clients, I'll ponder on their, like um, their progress and mm. like, everything. But if it's a bad day, like the bad day will follow me to like get back to the clinic. And mm. 
it just felt like work never stopped and I needed it to stop. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, and you, and you touch on some things that that I've been hearing more about recently in interviews. Um, Adrian and I talked a lot about this um, and I've talked to a couple other folks around, you know, the difficulties of being black and brown in ABA spaces. Um, and in particular, you know, in these kinds of clinics that you're talking about. Uh, and, and what tends to happen is, uh, so the, the episode that we did um, was on leadership development and, 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 and sort of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship and those sorts of things. And she talked about how Black folks in particular are, are, you know, have a real strong kind of entrepreneurial sense. Uh, and, and that's because there's a lot of Black folks that, are, that have had to kind of start their own, start their own ABA companies, because that was the only way they could have sort of a safe space, you know, where they could be treated fairly, and they yeah. could treat other sort of Black clinicians fairly. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and so I'm not surprised at all to hear, you know, that your experiences in, in clinics were, you know, the same and not, you know, not, not cool. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But I was grateful, like it happened that way. Cause I don't think, um, I would have, I don't know, I've ever like taken the break or like thought of another way to affect change without affecting my mental yes. health. So. Absolutely. No, and, and you can't, and, you know, if you're taking work home mentally, yeah, you got to get out. I, I, I'm i here. I'm with you. I'm, it took me, I, I'm, I'm pushing 50 now and it took me a long time to, uh, um, you know, have those kinds of boundaries. And so, you know, if you're, if you're able to do that early in the game, you're going to live a long, healthy life. Uh, that That's a lesson that I, I think more folks, you know, your age, uh, you know, need to learn. Um, so since you didn't decide to, uh, you know, go start your own ABA business, what, what, what are you doing now? So right now I am a UX researcher. And what's, what's, what's a UX researcher? What's that even mean? So UX researcher is basically someone that works on a typically like a UX team. By the UX means user experience researcher. And mm. we work with like multiple clients. It could be like a tech company or a health and wellness company or a food company, any company mm. that has a product. I can work with you to basically get our users feedback. And we have like certain methodologies that we use to get those feedback it could be like an interview it could be like a usability study like a survey it can be a diary study even a field study or a focus group and mm. we just um get into the minds of our users to understand the experience and then we make insights to help better their experience so it's like we're advocating for the users and also making sure that the business doesn't burn and crash because the users or the customers are the ones that give your products meaning in life they have to make sure that they're happy so that you can be happy, your business can be happy. Right. So you're kind of providing that feedback 
connection between user and 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 an entrepreneur that they they would only get otherwise through you know Yelp or or yeah. or, uh, you or know, like a red thread or people returning things uh, <laughs> you know and that sort of thing. Right on, that's cool. And 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 I see there's a, definitely a lot a lot of you know data analysis. You know the the stuff exactly. you like the stuff you like doing. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, seeing what's happening. And yeah. and it sounds like you know. Uh, and how long have you been in 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 the UX sort of space then? I would say I've been. I would say since this day I started doing interviews because that's basically it. So Paris interview client intake that's why i feel like aba and ux are this mm. big bridge that branches uh, branches us together or yeah joins us together because we're all about the users and the users can be anything it could be animal it can be a, a child it can be an adult mm. like anything that's our users and we want to make sure that their experience or their their life or their interaction with the environment continues mm. i would say like as long as i've been in aba I've been in UX research, but it did take me some time to learn like the methodologies and to actually see that most of the methodologies, like they tie back to like ABA. If you use surveys sometimes when you're yep. um, getting parents feedback on sure. how their kids are doing, we've done IDIs, like in-depth interviews with our parents to understand mm -hmm. what their goals are, what the children need. And then we use those goals and make research plans, UX researchers and behavior analysts we make research plans we then go ahead with the objectives we use the results to make informed data-driven decisions i would mm. say yeah ah, it's social validity right you know so yeah I mean, that's a big part that's awesome yeah. so do you work for a company or do you work independently or yeah right now i'm working for a company for mm. a period of time and i'm working with weight watchers oh ah, really cool so so sorry Maybe you answered my question or maybe I'm confused. So are you working for Weight Watchers doing this kind of research? Or are you working for a company doing this research for Weight Watchers? I'm working with Weight Watchers doing uh -huh, research. Neat. Yeah, neat. I just, into like yesterday, I had like seven interviews, one hour long interviews as well. But it's fun, yeah. like talking to them and seeing them use the products and just hearing their feedback. That's really cool. Really cool. Yeah. Love that. You know, I, I, you know, I did not expect that. See, this is how little I know. I, I thought UX was universal design. I thought, I thought, I thought that's what you stood for. Um, no. uh, uh, so it's, it's I, I, you, you completely gave me a, a completely new answer that I wasn't expecting. That's really cool. I, I don't think I've even heard of sort of this. Uh, I've heard of UX, but I just haven't mm -hmm. heard of what it is. I, I made an assumption that that's what it was. Really neat. Fun, fun. No, oh, good. I'm glad you're enjoying that. Um, okay. Well, let's shift gears back to back to the paper. Um, okay. So, thank you, Shala, for um, uh, you know <laughs> allowing this project to exist. Yeah. You know, it's uh, just such a well. Let's let, well let's just get into it. So, maybe just maybe start by telling telling me telling us kind of why you wanted to do this kind of study. My why? Yeah. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Whomhouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. 
For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is moonlight. It's always been like I knew that what I wanted to I didn't want to do like the typical thesis of like maybe lunar replication or working in like the clinic with one of my clients I wanted to do something else that would impact the African-American community in particular Mm. and the reason is I think I also wrote this like during my positionality in the paper but I read the book called um, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, I think. That's the title by Maya Angelou. Mm. And first of all, she's a profound writer and she's one of my favorites. But she talks about like her experience of coming back to Ghana or Africa. She got the opportunity to work at the University of Ghana. And she was so excited to come back home. She's been like her generation... Her generation, her family was stolen from this land. She's coming mm. back home to connect with her people. She was excited. She imagined that there would be like celebration, like, yes, mm. our sister is back. But that wasn't the case. Like when mm. she landed, like she said, I, I, like um, the in- individuals that like, gave more attention to the um, Caucasian uh, versus her. And she was mm. like, like, no one cared about her. <laughs> Or like her mm. coming home and it hit me. It was like a, a moment of realization for myself. It's like, um, it made me look in the mirror. Like, how would I have acted? I wouldn't have even cared about her. I would mm. have probably been more like um, interested in the Anglo-American um, individual versus her. Um, I wouldn't even have cared to listen to her story. And why is that? Because I don't know about her. I don't know about like the the issues that African Americans were facing. I don't know how hard it was for them to acclimate in in this country, in a country where they were being told every day that they're less humans and they don't matter. Like I didn't care about her story. I didn't care about like right. and um I would have it, it would have been acceptable for me to like blame it on like media and like the information that I'm getting, but I, I didn't do the research. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a wake up call for me. And I I had a lot of conversation like with my dad, because I feel like my, my dad is, uh, I would say he's, uh, and what's the word? <laughs> <laughs> he's not a, not, not a scholar, but I'll call him like a historian, like a self sure historian yeah and um so we had a lot of conversations about like um the different issues that african-americans are facing and the things that we don't see and the information that we're being fed by the media and different things but all in all it just moved my passion 
I read a lot. I watched a lot of documentaries. I, I listened to speeches. I studied the life of like Malcolm X and um, Martin Luther King and the activist Black Panthers. And like, it was like their whole story came to life to me. And they just, a lot of things have been taken from them. Their languages, their foods, the things mm-hmm. that they love, the people that they care for. But I just wanted to preserve their story and also like share the beauty of the African American community. Wow. That's that's something. The, I, I read this in the I read this in the paper, but mm-hmm. the, the positionality piece and and but I didn't make that I didn't make the connection that it was that for you it was you were putting yourself in the shoes of of the people not welcoming Maya uh, yeah. to, to Africa, and uh, and that's a bit of a tangent here, which I tend mm-hmm. to do. Um, but I have, I have a question, and I don't know if you have an answer for this or not. But and I, I've never actually wondered this till this moment. I mean, I think I think it's lovely that you know you you, you had that vision to then okay I I gotta I've gotta make this connection with you know you know African Americans and understand their sort of position and experiences and start learning that and that's that's wonderful and also probably heartbreaking <laughs> at the same time um, I don't know I, I I don't know a lot about sort of you know, I, I read one book. I read the step from the beginning, um, Abraham Kendi book, um, where he talks about kind of the history of not just slavery, but sort of the origins of kind of anti-black racism in the world. Like it goes mm-hmm. all the way, all the way back to well, I mean, it probably goes even further back. But he he really focuses kind of on like I think it's like kind of fifteenth, sixteenth century and and forwards, um, mm-hmm. and and uh what i had wondered was and i don't know if you know that know this or if your dad ever kind of shared anything about this we know a lot about sort of the folks being removed and putting the slave put into slavery and the bondage and then and, and they were put into slavery in africa um mm-hmm. and then eventually you know moved around the world and eventually when 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 uh you know uh folks came over to you know my side of the world they our side of the world down um they uh you know they brought them with them and and then there's that whole story mm-hmm. what i've never heard is is what effect that that had on the african people that those people were stolen from oh um, great question and and to parallel the reason i asked that is because I've been learning a lot about indigenous folks in my area um, mm-hmm. and and the, and the residential school experience. School is not a good word, of course, but that's what they call them, where, and I don't know if you know about these residential boarding schools, mm-hmm. they're in the States too, it's worth looking up, but essentially, um, uh, the, the this thing, called the Indian Act went into place in Canada. Mm-hmm. And 
the purpose of the Indian Act was essentially to regulate these people. And that's how, that's how they got into the reserves first. So they got they got torn from their lands and put into these sort of reserves um, to be sort of segregated, as it were. Um, oh. And um, that was sort of step one. Um, and then there was a lot of sort of, you know, I think brutal things that kind of happened. I think around the 1800s, um, we opened up these, the government of Canada, along with the Catholic Church and a couple other sort of denominations of of, of Christianity, mm-hmm. opened up these residential schools. And the idea was they were going to take all of the children, all the indigenous children from all mm-hmm. of the families all over North, all over North America mm-hmm. and put them into these schools and uh, assimilate them into white culture. And so they cut up, they shaved all their heads, cut off all the braids, made them wear, you know, westernized clothing. They weren't allowed to speak their own languages. They weren't allowed to do their own ceremonies. They weren't allowed to, you know, any of that. They had to do it. They, they, they all all become Christians. Um, wow. And 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 they were severely abused and in 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 and experimented on. And oh my uh, gosh. and you know there was. Um, there was a story that, and it look, you can look this up, uh, called the Kamloops, K-A-M-L-O-O-P-S, residential school. Um, this this hit the news about a year after the George Floyd murder, um, almost to the date, um, that, um, that at the Kamloops residential school, they had discovered using a, a, a method called ground penetrating radar, and they discovered the graves of 215 children buried on the property. Um, and indigenous oh folks have, and indigenous folks have known this for years. And we we kind of colonizers have really ignored this forever. And that number has gone up to, I think it's over 10,000 now that they found, not just at Kamloops, but in residential schools across the country and in the and in the US. And and I'm sure those numbers are going to go higher and higher because there's so many of these places now that are starting to get funding or help to do these sorts of scans but basically just and so i say all that because that is sort of the the uh you know the foundation of intergenerational intergenerational trauma for indigenous people and you know about literally losing a generations of people were were taken because these, these folks these some of these kids were born and died in these schools. So they never went back wow. home. Um, um, and there's a whole, you know, there's a whole history there that I could spend a few episodes on. Wow. But, but, so I've heard about sort of, you know, I, I understand, mo- I understand, I, 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 well, I understand from the, what this trauma means because these, these generations are really ripped away. Um, mm. and, and 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 what that's created, and still to to this day, there's still you know effects of these, and there's still and this is actually still happening. So this is actually um, we don't have residential schools anymore, but the foster care system has essentially taken over the residential school system, wow. and, and so we pull indigenous kids out of their families and put them into white families. Um, and uh, there was a thing called the '60s scoop in the 1960s, sort of after the residential schools closed. These kids were ripped from their families and put in foster homes all over North America. So they'd be like a kid from, you know, a, you know, a northern Canada, you know, reserve that got pulled from their family, 
and got adopted into a family in like Minnesota or Missouri or whatever, never to have connections again with their families. So that was the 60s scoop. And now that's moved into sort of the foster care system where, you know, much like um, the stories I hear about, you know, black kids in schools, about the disproportionality of black kids and getting disciplined, there's this disproportionality of indigenous children in foster care. And there's a real push now for, you know, governments to start funneling child, you know, sort of, what am I trying to say, sort of, you know, funding for children's services back into indigenous communities so they can care for these kids instead of, because it takes away all their culture and all this stuff. So you have this whole, I'm sorry, you didn't, you didn't know a lot of this. I'm so, uh, it was a bit of a blast for you. Um, But, um, so there's an obvious effect on indigenous families today as a result. That's why I ask in Africa, when these generation, literal generations of of people were ripped from these families. Now, again, this was, you know, a few hundred years ago, but I we know from the indigenous stories that carries over. Yeah. Um, what I'm, I'm curious, do you know about sort of what the effects have been on African families? Absolutely. I feel like there's a misconception that one like during slavery, the colonizers came, they took, um, like they stole people and then went back to like England or mm. s- stayed on stolen lands like Americas. Yeah. And they just left Africa. Right. They, ne- they never left. They yeah. were still there making people be less than humans. Like, mm. of course, never compare what the African Americans, Amer- they went through trauma went through abuse like on a scale that nobody can ever know like the extent but there was abuse and uh, mistreatment or maltreatment in on the continent till this day Mm. like there's still white-owned corporations that run countries that run resources congo Mm. is the richest countries if we're talking about in terms of resources and the amount of natural minerals and metals there's no place richer than congo but it's one of the poorest countries mm. and corporations like apple they get their whatever they need to make all the devices that i'm using that <laughs> we're all using they get it from congo they're using slave children slaves to mm. dig up mines and find those yes. things but they never left their claws are still deep into Africa and I don't think it will ever be taken away from Africa because unfortunately my dad always said like the white man like he would say like the white man is wicked but he's really really smart because mm. he make a war on like your physical body but they made a war on your mind your less than human i'm the standard mm. i am <laughs> i am who you should be looking up to i have the light skin that yes. this you should want the accent this is the accent you should want if you talk in a different accent that means you're less than me if you eat something different than me you're less than me mm. if you dress in a different way you're less than me so the white man and the yeah the white man became the standard and it's still the standard some 
it's affecting is deep into the veins like i don't think we can ever ever like understand the extent to which like the mm. white man made a war on the mind that was so intelligent like that's brilliant <laughs> as hard as it might be to say what well, is brilliant making a war on the mind and like if generations to generations to come like there's still individuals that believe like that that's the standard and mm. it became like a wall between your countrymen um i want to be close to the white corporation mm. so that i will get the benefits of the white corporation and you can be like away from us and like there are people that look like you sound like you but look down at you because they because of proximity with like the white corporations and even down to there's something called the Declaration of um, Amalgamation in Nigeria. So Nigeria was split into three zones. Um, if you open the map of Nigeria, like the half of it is for the northerners or like the houses, and then the rest is for Igbo and Yoruba. So they made three major like um, tribes, but there are hundreds of tribes in Nigeria, but we have three major ones. And mm. like, from the way it was split up, why is one um one tribe having like getting half of Nigeria is because of proximity with the white people. Mm. The works better with like the colonizers, so they were right, right. It's deep. It's deep and it's sad, but like that's the truth. Like it's still there. Yeah. So really the the you know the day that the ship left with the slaves, the the locals were still enslaved, you know. Yep. So yep. it was it, it, they didn't even really have a chance to probably even notice, you know, uh, no. in some ways. Yeah. No, they wow. were still they were still enslaved. Like it's just crazy. Yeah. It's a, it was a crazy time, and then like the thing ha- it moved from colonizers to I'm here to teach you stuff, and then stealing people. And then um, it then moves to like mission. I'm a missionary. Mm. Listen to me. I'm here to save your soul. Forget about your culture and act this way because like you're saved. And mm. I don't know. It's just it was just it's just a weird human experience. I guess I don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's um, kind of shift back a bit to the, to the positionality piece and sort of how, mm-hmm. you know, you started learning about African-Americans being yeah. in Africa um, yeah, and how that kind of informed doing this work. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I, I had an interest and I, I, I knew that I wanted my projects to be something that um, positively affected like the African-American community, like definitely not as a whole, but like the little um, community members that was able to um, benefit or not even benefits, but their stories were highlighted. Um, And I think, I don't know how I explained this idea to Shala, but Shala understood. And then she gave me a Mm. book called White Lilacs. And it's mm. like a fictional account of um, Quaker towns. So it talks about like following the um, 
Emancipation Proclamation. Um, like there was an African American town. I think in the book it was called Freedom Town. Yes, Freedom Town. I remember that. Yeah, and um, like their stories and how they had to, they were displaced because they wanted to make a park. Yada yada. And she was like, "This was actually a true story," and that piqued my interest. And mm. Shala already had Shala has an amazing relationship with like the Southeast Denton community, especially the Martin Luther King Jr. community. So this day, like this um, free tutoring that happens on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and that Shala organized, she's mm. just she's amazing. <laughs> We already know that, but um, she had a strong connection with them or strong relationship with them. And um, she gave me the book and the book intrigued me. I did more research on Quakertown. And by that time, I was already working as a tutor Mm. in the MLK Center as well. And um, I just knew like this was my this was my project. This is my passion. I I want to tell learn their stories. And yeah. Yeah, get people to talk about their stories because I could not understand how, like, in I, I think talking to the director at MLK, um, I asked her if there was like a curriculum that covered Quaker Town and what happened, mm. like in high school or something. Sure, and there there was nothing like that, oh. and that was weird to me because like it happened in Southeast Asia at least to mention it, but there's a park. <laughs> that um that mm. um that is called Quaker Town Park and also like there's a museum I guess if you want to learn about it mm. but they never taught them in school and I thought it was important to at least know um uh, about your community know about the land you're staying on and what yeah. happened to that land and um being a a daughter of Africa and having um I I. I haven't experienced so much when it came to oral storytelling and all the stories my mother told me and her my her mother told me and my mm. dad told me. Like all of those things are still in me and I hope to tell my children to one day. So it w- I just thought it would be perfect to at least have that connection happen between like the elders and the children. And it also, when I was younger, there was a program called Tales by Moonlight. I will come on like every, I think it was every other day or every Sunday. I don't remember, but like it had a tune. <laughs> and <laughs> when I did my thesis defense and my parents saw the name, the title of my thesis, they were singing the tune too because everyone knows Tales by Moonlight. And it was really cool. My auntie called me. I was like, what? You did Tales by Moonlight? That's so cool. But yeah, it was a a program that will come on there'll be an elder she will sit in the circle surrounded by children and then she will tell them like a story that had like um, a lesson and then they would ask questions and that was what would happen but as she told the story it would be like actors on the screen like acting out that story and having that conversation it was an amazing program mm. so um, I took that idea I took white lilacs I took my love for history and my desire to help the African-American community. And it came, it became this. Cool. What, um, so what, what is it about sort of, you know, Quakertown and Southeast Denton um, that, that 
Because you, you compare, and maybe uh, maybe I misread this, but I, you I, I thought you or were, maybe you were comparing Freedom Town, but you were comparing those stories to things like the the Seneca Village mm-hmm. and this Greenwood dist- district in Tulsa. Yeah. What, what's what's that relationship? It was it was fascinating to me, like learning about Quaker Town and how. No, like it wasn't public knowledge that this was a town that existed in Southeast Denton and then they were displaced. Um, I felt like this story was something that should have, it, it should be like the the backbone of Denton. Like this is what happened on this land and this is the land you're on. I felt like it was a story that needed to be told. So I was confused when like it wasn't being told and most people didn't know what Quaker Town was. Oh, I and, see. During my research, and this how the displacement of Quaker Town happened around the 1800s, and learning about like Quaker Town and the displacement, you know how like once you're researching something, more things pop up and more things pop up. And I think in one of the articles I was reading, they're talking about Seneca Village, Central Park, and I was like, what Central Park, Seneca Village? And it was all around that same time, 1800, Seneca Village mm. displaced so that a park, another park could be made and then like the Tulsa um massacre as well happening right. all around the same period and I don't know if something if three major um events happened that affected the black community in such a huge way I thought it was important like that for that story to at least be told and for people to know about what happened to those African American communities and yeah, I just didn't understand why the story wasn't out there. Right. So I think I feel like displaced is such a a mild term. Um. So so Quakertown was 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 a black community. Mm-hmm. Um, um. Yeah. You know, a, a thriving black community. It sounds like mm-hmm. as as was the Seneca Village and this Greenwood district. And then what happened? So is it that the white white folks came and said, you know, we want this land for something else. So you guys got to go, essentially? So essentially, from what Miss Alma Clark told me, because her husband grew up in Quakertown and he was mm. there when it was displaced and then he left for a long mm. time because it was just too painful for mm. him. And like watching his parents like go through that was really hard. But what she told me was that Quaker Town was like right in the, I think the present day square, like Denton Square, like right. downtown Denton, I guess. And it was right next to, it's currently known as TWU, Texas Women University. Okay. It was back then, I don't know what the name, I, I know what the name is, but I just don't remember off the top of my head. It was a different name. It was a female university. Yeah. And, um, the only reason was that it was too close to the university and the students had to walk past Quaker Town. God forbid they have to walk past a group of black um, mm. individuals enjoying resting in their homes. Like they had to walk, walk past to get to like the white community uh, yeah, location. And the community thought it wasn't safe and they wanted to keep their women safe because 
God forbid, they have to walk past a group of black people living wow. in the houses. So um, they were forced, basically, for they gave them no choice. They said, we're going to pay you um, for your land. And they paid them little to nothing, mm. gave them no choice. A lot of people right. tried to fight and go support, but who is going to defend um that community against the dominant community. So yeah. they had no choice. They took the money. I think one one woman refused to leave her house. Like truthfully, she refused to leave the house. Um she did not pack up. And so they had they literally picked up the house with her inside and took her to the oh my gosh. Uh, ground. And the worst part was like the land that they were given them was like the shit hole of Denton. It was where they were dumping like sewage. Um, they had like farmlands all around. So imagine, wow. it like it was horrible, Ugh. and they had no choice. Yeah, so that was it. But I think um, they gave them like a different reason. I don't know why. Mm. I, I think the the reason that they gave was like they wanted to make a park. Sure, sure. Yeah. And so, without you know telling the whole history of of Seneca Village. That one just blew my mind, the Central Park, which is, you know, mm-hmm. probably the most well-known park on the planet, mm-hmm. um, um, was created by displacing a, a thriving Black community and, and, and kicking them out. Yeah, and this time it was, like, a mixture of, like, majority African-Americans and, like, some Europeans, um, but, like, the the... Like the Europeans that lived in Seneca Village were like the ones that had to do like the hard work. They weren't rich people. They were the, you know, working class or lower class or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so you, you definitely wanted to sort of dig into, you know, the history of Quaker Town and start kind of, you know, um, you know, Bringing bringing it back into history because it was kind yeah. of erased, you know, unerasing it if that's a word. Um, yeah. And so, before we kind of dig into, uh, you know, the the nuts and bolts, I just want to talk a little bit about more about storytelling itself and mm-hmm. kind of. Why is why storytelling is so important to the black community? What what what's what's the reason for that? I'll say like storytelling is one of the main forms of preserving history for most indigenous tribes mm-hmm. and like also by marginalized um communities and groups. So mm-hmm. not just um African Americans, even Native Americans and yeah, like indigenous people in Canada as well, like mm-hmm. everywhere that there's an indigenous tribe, storytelling is the one thing that they use, one of the main things that they use to preserve that history. And mm. it was it was almost seen as um a ritual that brought people together. I would tell you every December when I was younger, when I would every December we would go to the village. Mm. Um so, and we would stay with my grandma and every night we were all required to sit outside with our lanterns, just one, and we will stare out into space, look at the stars. And my grandma would tell us about the stars. She would tell us about like the different stories. It was 
it was ingrained. Mm. This wasn't just happening in my grandfather's house. It was happening in my cousin's house. It was happening every, it was like a ritual that everyone did. So, yeah. and it's true for, I want to say just to be safe, because I don't know the numbers, but most indigenous tribes, storytelling is the one thing that they use to pass down the folk tales, pass For down sure. the history. Yeah. And um, African-Americans being ripped from their homes to a new land. Storytelling was the only thing they had to preserve like that, their true identity, especially mm. for their identity. Um, when they were being told, you can't speak your language, you can't um, act the way you act, you can't yep. dance the way you want to dance, you can't sing those songs, you have to do what we tell you to do. They were being repressed, their identities were being erased. Storytelling was the only thing that was passed down from generation to generation to help mm. preserve at least something from their identity. And um, yeah, I think I answered your question. You totally did, and and <laughs> and uh, and and the indigenous connection kind of follows into my next question because yeah, definitely the learning that I've done about sort of indigenous communities, it's all storytelling, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and you know, I know that sort of both from from your from your thesis and then also from some of the indigenous histories. Certainly in terms of slavery, you know, you know, language was taken away, mm -hmm. writing was taken away, you know, storytelling, you know, literally kept some people alive yeah. during slavery. And it was the only way for to sort of stay sane in, in a, you know, yeah. in, in a nonstop living hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... And similarly for indigenous folks, and uh, you know, and, you know, you you can't, you know, I always, I always would always hear, you know, about, you know, how we took everything away from the indigenous people, but we could never take away their stories. Mm. You know, those mm. were all, those were there. You no matter what you do to us, the stories will still be there. Sure. Um, and you know, some of them are becoming lost because the actual languages are disappearing. You know, yeah. you know, and there's so many indigenous languages, but there's something else that 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 I hadn't didn't know, and and uh, you know, I'm not surprised from from everything you've said was you know a lot of the terms that I've only heard in sort of with indigenous groups because I've really only gotten to know the black community through this podcast um, is you know words like aunties and elders. Uh, which which are also terms that you hear a lot in sort of the indigenous communities. And mm -hmm. so maybe just a, a little bit about sort of what elders are in the black community and and and, and particularly you know uh, elder women and and, and their mm -hmm. value. Yeah, absolutely. And like if you go on YouTube and you type in like let's say old school Nigerian movie I can bet you like twenty dollars there would be a guy there or a group of people called the elders, mm. and they're there to <laughs> um, like help the Igwe, the king, make decisions and to make sure like the community is safe. Right, and that's very true. Like an elder isn't just someone that in in most like 
Nigerian communities. An elder isn't just someone that's older, but it's someone that is looked up to to um, pass down wisdom to the youth and to also help the king like make sure that the community or the kingdom is being ran smoothly so in most african american sorry in most african communities we have elders i call a lot of people my auntie and they're not my mom's sister but right. it's a term of respect as well yes you are not allowed to call i wouldn't oh my god i would never ever look at an older person and call them by their first name that is mm. just respectful i do not have the right mm. i have not gone through i think there's also a video of maya angelo and she was talking um a young person was asking her a story and she called her maya and she was like like with all due respect <laughs> you, <laughs> you haven't you don't have the right to call me by my first name because yeah. you don't know my experiences so and it's a true thing for african um, communities you don't go around calling people by their first. I don't even know what my grandma's first name is or my huh. first name is. Wow. To think hard to remember, but yeah. um, I, 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 I did, I did not, and I do not have the right to call them by their first name. I'm not mm. their peer. I haven't mm. gone through what they they've gone through. I haven't seen what they've seen. And there's a, oh, there's a quote. Or um, a proverb that my parents will tell me till this day. They say, they tell me what bookie, what I see sitting down, you can't see even if you climb the top of Mount Kilimanjaro or like the tallest mountain, you would never see it. And it's all about the wisdom and the experience. Mm. And those experiences and that wisdom earns them the rights to not have to be called their first thing by a young person because I don't have that experience mm. with that wisdom either. So there are a lot of titles, a lot of people I call uncle, or a lot of people I call daddy, like, oh, hi, hi, daddy, hi, hi, sir, hi, ma, mm. um, hi, auntie, hi, uncle, like all those terms, or grandma. I don't have the right to call them by their first name. And I think it's true for most, like, um, tight-knit African communities and also... I think for most African Americans as well, and even indigenous individuals. Mm. Yeah. And th that's cool. Um, yeah. It tripped me when Shala was like, call me Shala. I was like, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Never doing that. And so, what, what, so for someone like Shala, um, mm -hmm. what would you call her? Dr. Shala. You just call Doc, well, you, you would, so you'd say her first name, but you'd put doctor before it. Yes, because she told me it's urban. It's, it's, she told me it's all right. She mm. said that was okay. And being in the States now for 10 years, like I have learned that, that it's normal. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of like professors, at first I, it was very uncomfortable for me to call them by their name. Mm. I'd always say, yes, sir, yes, ma, like because it's respectful. You, mm. you, you're a professor. You've spent so many years like learning that wisdom and that knowledge. I don't have the right, but yeah. um, it took me a, not a long time, but a short time to realize that the is the norm in this end of the in this end um, of, of the, the earth world. to yeah, call yeah. people um, by their first name. And and what about just one more kind of question with all the the aunties? So you've seen you get like head aunties in a room. How do you, <laughs> how, how how do they know who you're talking to? I'll go. I'll walk up to them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're not hollering. Uh, no. Yeah, waiting for one one day answer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, very good. Okay. So 
they're, they're one of the reasons I asked who are elders because um you know that 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 plays a role in this study so what 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 was so you we know now you wanted to kind of you know bring back the history of Quaker town to sort mm-hmm. of southeast Denton in some mm-hmm. way you know and or to at least some people there and and mm-hmm. and, and and help that community learn so how'd you do that how did I do that um first of all like Shala was major in this like Shala made the way paved the way for this and like I just I wrote off of her relationship and the trust the community had in her and Mm. like the 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 trust they had in her like in Dr. Shala um that made the 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 path easy and also like I had some form of relationship with the director of MLK right um she had seen me, we've had conversations, and um she Miss Shalon Brown, a major force as well in this um study. She helped me contact um Miss Armor Clark and I also wrote off of her trust and her reputation as well. That made it easy for me as well. Um so Shala and Miss Shalon, they helped me a lot in this project and um yeah, they gave me the opportunity and they also gave me the space and their names and their mm. honors as well. So that was what gave me like the space to actually run this project. Without Shala or Miss Shalon, it would have been possible. Mm. So yeah, shout out to them. So Miss Alma Clark is for this study is the elder. She is the elder. Right. And ninety she just turned ninety-five last month. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. So she definitely has got the stories. And <laughs> yeah. so in this study, you're you're essentially wanting to pull out her stories. Yeah. Yeah. And so who 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 did you want her to tell the stories to? I wanted her to tell the stories to the youths, the Southeast um Denton. You um youths and the first participant was someone that I had interacted with. Now I say we have more of a relationship. She's yeah. my baby, yeah. <laughs> but we've interacted. To, uh, we've been in the same space, like doing tutoring. Yeah. Um. She was present. Miss. She's Miss Shalon's niece, so she was present, always present, and um, we had that relationship, mm. um, as well. So she was my first participant. She was the first person that said. Hell yeah, I want to do this, Miss Vicky. So she was the first person. And then honestly, the second participant, because I had no idea like um how to recruit my second participant, but it was definitely word of mouth. And the next day that I was with um my um participants, Chevelle, um her friend came in and she was like, What are you guys doing? I want to do it too. And that was my <laughs> second participant, um, um Malia. And the third day, or the second day of working with Malia, there were like a group of five kids that showed up too, and were like, "What are you guys doing?" Oh my we gosh! Do it too. So it was very word of mouth, and um, it's like the numbers just kept <laughs> increasing and increasing. So it was really cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So, 
primarily this study was just those the two of them, right? Just two the two of the them. The two girls. Yeah. And, and, and sorry, how old were they? Um, or are they? Sorry, they're still around. Yeah. Javel is eight years old, and hmm. I think Mo, Mo, Malia is. I think she's eight or nine. Oh my gosh! So just, just, yeah. just, just youngins, really mm-hmm. your babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're essentially using some, a couple of those kind of ABA procedures, I guess. Yes. Um, to teach these kids how to how to what how to listen to a story or how to uh, how to request a story what, what was what was the goal there the goal was to have teach them interview skills mm. um that we hopes would even carry on to other aspects of their lives right. and better confidence but um interview skills to ask for stories to listen to those stories and to understand what those stories are and why they're important. Mm. Yeah. And so we also had to teach them what it means to be respectful to an elder and um, mm. what's re- expected of them. And um, yeah, listening skills, like um, um, nonverbal ways to show that you're listening. So like nodding when the elder was talking or mm. making like um gestures or sighing or making sounds like just to show the elder that you're listening to what the elder is saying and i would mm. say that them being african-american um girls they were very respectful i didn't have to teach them to be respectful because their parents already taught them how to yeah, be yeah 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 so they would sit straight when she's talking to them like and they would give her their full attention so it was it was an, it was amazing because they already had those skills <laughs> that was there to remind them to use those skills i think you already you better already touched on this but after everything you've kind of told me about sort of the black community and about you know you know about you know storytelling in the black community and so on and so forth mm-hmm. I guess why do these kids need to learn this from you? Isn't this something they were they they sh- they might already be doing or Yeah, great question. I would say um because although um they already had those skills, I wanted to make sure that like they um understood why those skills were important and why we needed them to have like to we needed them to make those skills present during the interviews and mm. why it's important. Like we had a whole lesson on who an elder is, like the importance of the elder and like the importance of story. We wanted mm. them to, you have those skills, great, but like the stories she's telling you, they're the gold. They're the things that we want you to mm. pay attention to. Mm. We need to form that intergenerational bond and to also have them carry it along to other people in their lives. And, I, I would say I was gonna save this to the end, but like it did carry on to other people in their lives. Mm. Um, they would go back home from dinner, and <laughs> uh, Miss Shalon was telling me like Miss Chevelle would be lecturing her on Quaker Town and what Miss Alma Clark said, and nice. like different stories of like the refrigerators back then having to get the ice and straightening. Like she, they remembered those stories and they remember the experiences and. Like the painful story of Quaker Town, they did remember, especially um, 
when Miss um, Alma Clark was talking about like the painful experiences that the residents of Quakertown had, um, or they had the the residents had, um, they paid attention to that as well, and they made connections to other things that unfortunately they have seen or and have seen like the adults in their how um, their lives experience. Like Chevelle made the connection of. Miss Alma Clark being forced to sit at the back of the bus. She was like, oh, that reminds me of Rosa Parks. Mm. I've heard her before. And yeah, and it was like, yeah. And like, they made the connection to like, yeah, she just told us of how hard it was to be like Black or African-American back then. But like, mm. it's still true to this day. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll 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 circle back around to kind of what the kids are doing these days, but um, <laughs> um, so let, let, this is kind of an ABA podcast sometimes. So <laughs> uh, let, let, let's talk a bit about that piece. So I I don't want to get into the sort of the verbal behavior analysis you did, which was very good, and 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 folks can certainly reach out to you if they want to read that but you did i think you did a nice sort of vb analysis of sort of speaker and listener behavior and you know all that stuff that stuff's a bit it was hard (laughs) i bet you it was hard it looks like it was hard but i think i think i think you did a really good job of sort of laying that out and kind of using skinner's analysis and all and that kind of piece um to sort of basically to basically you're you know, and this is these are just things you do in a thesis. I mean, this is probably oh. not things you you would do, you know, normally if you're just teaching kids to sort of listen to elders, you wouldn't go sit yeah. down and do a, a a a VB analysis of what listening and responding is. But this is more for, you know, you getting a graduate degree and yeah. understanding the conceptual basis of that stuff. And so yeah. I get that. Um, but I do want to hear a little bit about the uh the uh the procedure, the ABA procedures that you used. Uh, to teach the kids and, and and kind of what that looked like. Yeah, so we use teaching interaction um, procedures at TIP. Mm. And um, TIP typically has like six steps. Like first, um, like, um, stating what the behavior is, breaking down the behavior, then the teacher modeling what that behavior is. And then um, the learners discriminating between like an appropriate and inappropriate one and then providing feedback. So that was like the basics of it. And then we mm. use that to um, teach each of our skills. So, sorry, let me, I need a refresher. There was listening, there was respect, and there was, um, it wasn't, I, I don't think I called it retention, but mm. basically retention or recall. Yeah, 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 yeah. so we have those three um three skills and then with each skill it was the same like flow tip what the behavior is mm. yes, and then i showed like a, a wonderful wonderful kid that um is really close to me i call him my nephew even though he's not but my nephew timmy he was my model and we uh recorded like an approach him and his mom actually they helped me show like um, good listening behavior and like <laughs> bad listening behavior and like res- more respect. And that's what we use. And the kids were able to like discriminate between like what makes it appropriate and one, what makes them inappropriate. And then we would practice and practice until like they got a score of at least 80% before we moved on to the next skill. Gotcha. Yeah, so TIP. And that TIP, that that's uh, 
that's the autism partnership folks, right? That's like Justin Leaf and, and those folks. Yes. Right, yes. right, 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 right. Um, and that sounds a whole lot like BST. Yeah. But like the the what's the difference between BST and TIP is um I guess like they don't with BST they don't have to discriminate between yes. like an appropriate and inappropriate. That's why I, I did mention BST in my uh, like in my paper. Yeah. Like BST and TIP, they they have like the same um components, but TIP has the one piece like discriminating. Mm. So that's all we used. Oh, this, this reminds me of because I think uh, Leaf and colleagues have a paper, the cool or not cool Ooh. paper. I think. Uh, do you know that one? Um, and that's I think. Well, I, I don't. I haven't read it, so I don't want to. I don't want to butcher it. But I think that's that discrimination piece. So yeah. you know, this behavior is cool. This behavior isn't so cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, if you engage in the cool behavior you know, good things to be caged in the not so cool behavior, maybe not good things. I think that's sort of <laughs> the gist of of of, of that of, of that paper. And you know, guys, I'm sorry, I haven't read it, so forgive me <laughs> if I if I if I've butchered that. But 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 just by you saying that discrimination piece, that that mm-hmm. that cool, not cool thing makes more sense to me contextually. Okay. So so you so what were the so the skills were basically listen to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, um, let's say respectful was the next one or respect. So be, be, respect res- be respectful, be respectful, well, well listening. And, and then, um, and then basically recalling the story yeah. so you could talk about it after. Yes. Sort of, basically. Yes. So, so elder Alma tells them a story about Quaker town. Mm-hmm. They, they sit there and use appropriate nod and and ask questions back Mm -hmm. clarifying questions that sort of Mm -hmm. thing and then Mm -hmm. later on you go ask them what did you learn about quaker town exactly yeah right and so so how did it go it went beautiful Mm. honestly like i can't stress how wonderful it went and i think um with kids with kids you don't want to i i had like in-depth interviews with IDIs again, UX research, but mm. in-depth interviews with Alma Clark. And we spent like hours talking about like her story and going really into the nooks and crannies. But with the mm. girls, I I know kids sitting still for 10 minutes, like you're asking for too much already. Yeah, yeah. Um, and elders have el- most yeah, elders and like older individuals, especially older like African-Americans or African individuals, when they're telling stories, they can go really in depth. And Mm. um, sometimes they forget about the time. Like when I call my mom, she will spend like 30 minutes on one story and she just keeps going on and on and on. But at least I have the attention to sit there and listen to her. Like to ask that of a kid is like asking for too much. So for each of the interviews, it typically took, and I think Miss Amakark was also aware of that, so she was, uh, she wouldn't go too in depth, which is <laughs> really nice of her, because yeah. uh, she knew like kids get itching to stand up. Um, but um, it took about like fifteen to twenty minutes to um, interview her and like mm. her story, and they had like a couple of um, questions, which was like, "Tell me about yourself," um, and Miss Amakark would tell them about themselves and um 
I don't remember. But it talks about Miss Alma Clark and she talks about like, before she talks about Quaker Town, he talks about like, um, because she spent a lot of time talking about like, look, yeah, tell me about yourself. Tell me how it was growing up when you mm. did. And then tell me about Quaker Town and then tell me why it's important, why Quaker Town is important, something like that. So like mm, those questions, mm, mm, mm. like five questions in total. And it took like 20 minutes and Miss Alma Clark would tell them like their stories. And um, if they had any follow-up questions, they would ask her as she, as she went. And Miss Alba Clark being amazing as she is, like right after they're done with the interview and the kids thank, like the kids started the interviews by introducing themselves, thanking right. For the time, and at the end, they would thank her as well, and like say something that they've learned from the story. Like, oh, thank you so much about telling me about how you how it was when you grew up in Austin, mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. like that. And um, thank you for your time. And once they were done, she was like, "All right, tell me what you learned. What's what was cool for you today?" And then <laughs> we'll have to tell her something as well, which was cool. Oh, that's awesome. But that's how we that's how it typically went. Twenty nice. minutes questions, yeah. Yeah, and, and I read, I read, I read the stories and, and sort of the the recall, and it was interesting that the some of the stuff the kids recalled were was the same, you know, like I met you know your name and where you mm-hmm. know, old you are and that sort of stuff, but then other details were quite different, mm-hmm. and so that was cool that they kind of both had sort of they both got different experiences from chatting with Alma. Yeah, Alma didn't tell the exact same story to each kid. Yeah, which was amazing too, and like with. I think with um, Malia, one of my one of the kids, like her experience with Miss Alma Clark, I think was more personal based on the things that were happening in her life as well. Mm. So um, she remembered like the most of the personal stories of Miss Alma Clark of like mm. her um, her husband and like her husband being like from Quaker, like it, it was really personal for her. Versus mm. um, Chevelle was very like. She wanted the full view, like the historical part of it, like what was happening, why she had to sit at the back of the bus, and mm, why why mm. didn't she, why did she have to sit upstairs in the theater um, instead of downstairs where everyone like where the white um, individuals were. So, so Malia Malia had some really good questions back to Alma that weren't part of the original story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on, right on. Really cool. So, okay, so. Uh, it sounds like you know success um for sure so back to sort of you know the generalization piece so you said some of the stuff continued what do you, yeah. so how what did that look like um i'm sorry when you say some of the things oh continue to other aspects of your life yeah yeah yes yeah. so like on the dinner table um Chevelle for because Chevelle was present for my thesis defense. Nice. And um Shalon was talking about like Chevelle went back home that night and she was like, Yeah, this is what happened to Miss Alma Clark. Miss Alma Clark said that in Austin she had to sit at the back of the bus and like she asked a lot of questions from her, like, her grandma. Like, what was your experience? Did you have to sit at the back of the bus? Oh my and, gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, like the differences with like, like I think she was mind blown by the fridge and them having to put like the ice right. um, fridge it was mind blown going to her. And she was like, they had different fridges back then as well. And her husband was from Quaker Town and um, Malia as well. Malia would go home and talk her mother's ear off about Quaker 
Mark Clark, and she just said it was the coolest thing. Like till this day, um, Malia's mom will always tell me about how like cool that period was for Malia, which I'm so grateful for. Yeah. And um, also like the confidence she has like with um uh, with school and like reading as well. Like it got better. Like those skills because she she had she was really shy and sometimes like um when reading like the questions Mm. um she would stumble on her words but with practice like she got more confident and that carried on to like school life and also with her interaction with like her friends it it was like a cool thing for her and Chevelle to share the experience of Miss Alma Clark together like Mm. yes we're interviewing Miss Alma Clark she's a 94 year old woman she was from Quaker it was a cool thing for them to brag about so yeah but it carried on in different ways which was really cool that is really cool. I I really want to see Malia and Chevelle in ten years and I know and see where they're at and what they're doing because yeah, this would be a game changer. Yeah. Um, do you know? Are they? Are they? Do they see Miss Alma ever anymore? Or yes, after the study, after I graduated, we went to we went to the Quaker Town. I and Miss Alma Clark separately. We went to the Quaker Town Museum and. When everyone saw, it was so cool. When everyone saw her, they were like, Miss Alma Clark, oh my God, this is so cool. You're a walking legend. And people were taking pictures of her. Oh my gosh, but like, this awesome. is Alma Clark, like her husband's pictures on the wall here in the museums. It was really cool. And uh, we went, we grabbed lunch. We went over to the Quakertown Park as well. Mm. We went back to her house. And I saw like the pictures like from Quakertown. She showed me like book, I think, I don't know if I added that in my appendix, but mm. like there was a notebook from a teacher from Quaker Town and like amazing, amazing stuff that she showed me. And we had a lunch with her in her house and then I left. I still call her sometimes to check on her. And then I took the girls to Quaker Town Museum. And then another day we went to Miss Alma Clark's house and like there's a video on my phone. She was showing them one of the lanterns she has from the 1800s and they were trying mm. to light it together. And they're like, oh my God, like it was a really cool experience, like watching them bond outside. And the last time I saw them, they were like, when when was the last time you saw Miss Alma Clark? And I was like, oh, I was going to see her for her birthday. And they were like, oh, without us. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a whole thing. Now I have to m- make it a point to remember like every couple of months. It's been a couple of months since they last saw her. Mm. And like they still, Chevelle texts me and was like, Miss Bookie, when's the next time we're seeing Miss Alma Clark? And I'm like, uh... I don't know. We'll make the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You yeah. got to. You got to. Uh, and I'm hoping we talked about this sort of before we pressed record. I'm, I'm hoping we'll try to maybe share some of those photos and yeah. maybe some of the videos because th- th- that stuff is. When you hear the stories that you're hearing today, folks, and then see these pictures, it's just going to it's just going to bring it all together. It's it. They're they're just it. Appendices and theses are usually pretty dull. You know, you got consent <laughs> forms and, you know, you got some graphs which are kind of nice. You got, you know, um, you know, uh, data collection sheets and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the best appendices ever, you know, with, with <laughs> picture, you know, pictures of Quaker Town and Alma and, and, and the kids and sitting with her and and uh, and the videos. It's just oh, just yeah. so, so lovely. And I'm, I. I want to point out that the it was Shala's idea as well. 
because I had all the pictures and I, I knew I was going to Baba and I presented the pictures in Baba and they also watched the videos and oh there gosh. were a lot of people with like ter- teary-eyed individuals coming oh. to me and talking about how amazing like just watching that like the elder and the young mm. child and the child giving the elder her full attention and listening yes. to those stories like it was just a beautiful thing to witness especially for the mm. african-americans that were in the crowd that day and sure. it was it was one of the best i was in awe because i was nervous i i i felt unworthy because like this isn't my story to tell mm. but at, at least yeah. i got the permissions to tell the story and sure. i spent a huge chunk of my time like talking about my positionality and why this project came to life and why yeah. it's important to me and Oh, the reception, Ben, like they gave me a standing ovation and it, it was mind blowing because I thought uh. I messed up, but it was <laughs> it's so good for them. And oh, that's great. Yeah, it was amazing to like to witness and like I got consent from Miss Alma Clark and the girls like till this day before the podcast, I told them like I'm coming on the podcast, I'm gonna talk about you, and they're like, Yeah, it's fine, it's cool. Sweet. <laughs> you can do that. And um Miss Alma Clark as well gave um permission for the pictures and the videos. So lovely. Well, I can't wait to share those. Wondering, uh, I mean, I know you're you're busy with a new job and you know, and, and moving on your career, and but you know, I I mean you're still in the community and you're still in contact with these folks, which is awesome. And is, is there been anything, this just seems like something that should keep happening for more kids. Uh, is, is, is anything like that happening at all? Or have any other kids, you know, met with Alma or. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. Zigzag is an autism therapy management platform. At its core, Zigzag seamlessly allows management of programs, adding, editing, changing long-term and short-term objectives on the go. Zigzag makes data collection super easy for therapists on site and automatically calculates progress, providing you with session summaries and graphs in real time. Zigzag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. Zigzag is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. The third secret word is elder. No other kids that I know of have met with Alma yet. Mm. Um, but I do know that my 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 hope was to continue this after graduation, but you know how graduation comes and like life just happens and um 
yeah the the hope will be maybe like during the summer and i have to reach out to shala because shala is dr shala is a busy Mm -hmm. woman that everyone wants a piece of her but um it would be cool to continue this i know um she also wants this to continue and the plan was to like for was for a different like graduate student to pick this up yeah that's what i was thinking yeah for sure as well so it's open like with that avenue and also with me going back and i'd love to see i'd love to see chevelle and malia take this job over like in a few (laughs) years and right you know i mean right wow yeah so awesome i know i know amazing all right people you see why this is the coolest study ever (laughs) i mean come on Best ever, best story ever, best ending ever. Oh, so good, so good. And I, I haven't seen the videos yet, so I, I really want to see the videos. I'm pumped for that. Um, yeah, that's wicked. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that you're going to look to get published, uh, but you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it, it, I mean, it does matter because I think, you know, more of the world needs to see this. But yeah. I don't know. I don't think this needs to be published in a, you know, in a journal. Yeah. You know, I think like, this I don't is... know what journal would accept this. I no. don't think like, I, I had a fear and she, uh, I can't stress how amazing Chala is, like in protecting yeah. me, or protecting my passion. And I also want to state that as a graduate student working on this thesis, I had an experience that was very um unusual and unique um mm-hmm. i had a phd student april linden that shala put um on my team as well so it was me and april working together and mm-hmm. then shala as well so i had that point of contact with april april was there also to support me april mm-hmm. was present for my presentation at baba and cool. um she helps me like every step of the way the kids love april so chevelle has a wonderful relationship with april april is present in um southeast denton and also mlk and i had this unique um encounter where i and april worked together april helped me build the study and before april it was i and dr Pritchett malaika and mm-hmm. she helped me. She helped me in gathering like the background the mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. working together and none of my peers that I know of had that um, experience where, mm. like, most of them even had an issue with finding time with their thesis advisor. Whereas with me, Shala made it possible for me to have, like, people to support me mm. and to work together to bring this project to life. So Shala is amazing. Yeah. And April and Malaika, everyone's amazing. Yeah. Super shout out to Shala, April and Malaika. Super shout out. wow right on it's a good way to end the week (laughs) Uh, it's awesome thanks thanks for doing this work you know thanks for you know reading Maya Angelou (laughs) and just thanks for you know sharing some space with me to hear the story Um, this is awesome Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening and for even reading um, our work and finding it valuable. Because this, this, I'm not just the, I know my name is like the only author, but it was 
me, Chevelle, Malaya, Leah, Malaika, Miss Amakar, Shala, April. We all are a part of this project. Like we all worked, and Miss Shalon, obviously, we Mm -hmm. all worked hand in hand to bring this um project to life. So it's not just me. Yeah, all of us. Yeah. Super cool. I'm glad you came on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank yeah. you for reading it. And yeah. I didn't. Um, 100%. Yes. Thank you. So good. Cool. All right. We'll see you later.